0: This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. All right, so today we're going to talk about the three temptations of Christ. A couple of episodes ago, we looked at the finding of the child Jesus in the temple and faced the fact that we all have to separate from our families one day. In the last episode, we looked at the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist gave and how it kind of raises the question that we all have about who we are and our place in the world. We want to know, am I good am I not good? There's lots of evidence for both. Well, now we're going to put those concepts together and see how Jesus faces Satan alone to show who he is. After all, we all have to stand before Satan all alone and grapple with the answer about whose definition of us we will accept, God's or his enemies. Anyway, we'll start by reading the gospel and notice some aspects of it, and then kind of go through the three temptations. In fact, let's look first at the gospel of Mark, which doesn't actually go through those three temptations, like Luke and Matthew do. But instead, Mark writes, It happened in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. On coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit drove him out into the desert and remained in the desert for forty days, tempted by Satan. He was among wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. So this is the big moment when Jesus arrives on the scene. When he talks about his baptism later in life, he'll say, I have come to set a fire on earth, and ho, oh, how I wish it was blazing. There's a baptism with which I must be baptized, and how great is my anguish until it is accomplished. Baptism for him is the entrance into a life of mighty deeds and kind of cataclysmic confrontations with evil. So Jesus steps into the world and is revealed as the mighty one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit shining a spotlight on him by hovering above him in the sky, and the Father, like an announcer's voice, announcing him. When Psalm 29 talks about this voice that Jesus hears over the waters, it says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the Lord over vast waters. The voice of the Lord is mighty. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The glory of God thunders. And in his temple all say glory. So this is a pretty dramatic moment. John the Baptist is like kind of a drum roll from like a wall full of bass drums leading up to Jesus, who then kind of appears with a cymbal clash. And then if you think of it like a symphony, there's like a a suspenseful, dark music that kind of builds through the rest of the story. Anyway, Mark very succinctly draws us exactly to the themes that this podcast wants to look at. When he says the spirit drove Jesus out into the desert. This is kind of the image of us today. At our baptism, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and God sees us and is pleased. But then the real world awaits us. And the force of the Holy Spirit is no longer this refreshing dove that's fanning us from above, but it becomes this driving wind that shoves us out into the real world and face like ugly temptations. It happens to each of us. For me, I was kind of hit with this reality when I was a teenager and I was listening to Bob Dylan. Uh, Jesus seemed kind of irrelevant to me in my life growing up in the 1970s and 1980s. I only heard his name used as profanity or in comedy that mocked TV evangelists or by religion teachers. And with religion teachers, it seems like you could always say Jesus caring or sharing and you'd get the answer right to whatever the question was. Well, that changed for me when Bob Dylan released his box set album. It was kind of the first of this trend of box set albums. His was called Biograph, and it hit the stores in time for me to get it for Christmas when I was 16. I got the records, and as was the custom in 1985, I taped them and listened to them endlessly on my Walkman. I loved it all, but the lyrics with the most kind of heft the ones that were the most seemed to be at stake were the three Christian songs from his Christian period that was short-lived. The the three Christian songs kind of hit me hardest. You Gotta Serve Somebody was one of them. Uh, It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, the song mesmerized me. It's got an awesome beat for starters, but also the sheer kind of egalitarianism of its lyrics. You know, nobody was exempt Rich and poor had the same choice. But the more I listened to it, the more I realized it was saying something true. Young people love rock music because it kind of speaks passionately about things that adults aren't willing to talk about. And that's what Dylan was doing for me in that song. Dylan said Jesus was important, and I needed to kind of find out why. Coming to Jesus this way helped me bypass the religious pretenses, and kind of cultural baggage that were blocking the normal channels for me at the time. Well, Gaudium et Spes, the Second Vatican Council document on the church in the modern world, says the same thing Dylan does, only a little bit more starkly, actually. It says, quote, a monumental struggle against the powers of darkness pervades the whole history of man. The battle was joined from the very origins of the world and will continue until the last day, as the Lord has attested. Caught in this conflict, man is obliged to wrestle constantly if he is to cling to what is good, nor can he achieve his own integrity without great efforts and the help of God's grace." Quote. So we're kind of gripped in this service to the devil instead of the Lord. You know, we want dominance, we have appetites for greed, pornography, rage, violence, and any one of us is about three decisions away from giving in to one or all of those. The gospel says Jesus was among wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Like Jesus, we live among wild beasts, only we find them in our own hearts, in our appetites. This is the life in the maze of space and time that we keep talking about. If every human heart is a battle to the death with an enemy of God fighting to win us over, then the maze is a place of destruction and chaos filled with the carcasses of souls who have succumbed. I mean, that's the age-old story of humanity. Well, into this walks Jesus Christ, faces off with the devil, and let's look at Matthew's description of the three temptations and see kind of how Jesus answers them. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for forty days and forty nights, and afterwards he was hungry. The tempter approached him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. He said in reply, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your feet against a stone. Jesus answered him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their magnificence. And he said to him, All these I shall give you, if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan. It is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Like I said, that sums up the battle that mankind has been waging since the beginning of time, and the gospel shows how Jesus fought the devil at this age-old game and won. So notice that the first thing the devil does is try by tempting Jesus' flesh. So from the very beginning, Satan has objected above all to the very fact that God was planning to become flesh, to be incarnate. He was disgusted by the weakness of human beings. And and he kind of spent a lifetime trying to prove that God was an idiot for making fleshly creatures that are like angels. And the way he did it was trying to exploit our flesh at all the major turning points in salvation history. In his words to Jesus, you can hear echoes of Satan promising Adam and Eve, when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's. You can hear echoes of the Israelites complaining to Moses, longing for the days of slavery when at least the Egyptians took care of their food. And you can hear our own slavery today. We too are tempted to follow our appetites, to shrink our souls to the size of material comforts and take control of our own providence rather than rely on God. Satan was sure he could do the same to Jesus that he had done to the rest of us. But Jesus defeated the devil precisely by his self-mastery of the flesh. Even though he is very hungry, he refuses the temptation to make bread, quoting scripture which says that man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Second, the devil tries tempting Jesus as pride. The devil, no doubt angrily, tries another temptation, Again, it seems to come from his own story. Satan himself was thrown down to earth. Now he tempts Jesus to throw himself down to earth and show that he's better than Satan by being saved from this fall. He's thinking this is an irresistible offer. Surely Jesus will want to one-up Satan. After all, he captured so many by his pride. The judges who allowed everyone to live according to their own ways and the many times our ancestors hardened their hearts and tested God. But Jesus knows that even to accept the offer to enter a contest with Satan is already a defeat, because it means you agree with his presumptions. Jesus refuses to tempt God or to get into one-upmanship with the devil. Third, the devil tries what he always does. He lies. He tries tempting Jesus by a false promise to deliver all the kingdoms to him. This is exactly what worked with Adam and Heath. Satan told them that if they ate the fruit in the garden, quote, you certainly will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, we know that our first parents did indeed die and we are not like gods after all, knowing good and evil. Instead we're slaves to Satan who successfully tempts us to misunderstand good and evil every day. Now the devil tells Jesus, he will give him all the kingdoms of the world If he will only worship him, devil who lost heaven is promising the world. This won't work on Jesus to buy the devil's lie means doubting God's truth. And that's not something he's going to do. He says, get away, Satan. It is written, the Lord, your God, shall you worship and him alone shall you serve. So we've spent millennia since this happened, celebrating how Jesus's victory reversed Adam and Eve's defeat. As Saint Paul puts it, through one man, sin entered the world and through sin, death. But as through one transgression, condemnation came to all. So through one man's righteous act, acquittal and life came to all. But that brings us to a different answer, a later answer that Jesus will have to these temptations of Satan. So here's a little spoiler alert. Several weeks from now in the podcast, we'll show this kind of final answer of Jesus to Satan. Jesus will go to the cross to actually deliver on the false promises of Satan, but on God's terms. Satan enslaves the world by promising comfort, power, and glory in this life on his terms. All right, so let's compare the first temptation to turn stones to bread with Holy Thursday when Jesus turns bread into his own body and blood. Jesus, remember, was led By the Spirit into the desert for 40 days. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil challenges him If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. We know how Jesus will answer Satan in the end, because we see it right in front of us today the Eucharist. Jesus says, It is written, one does not live on bread alone. Well, where does that quote come from? Where is this written? Well, it's written in the story of Moses, who told the hungry Israelites, Remember how for those 40 years the Lord our God has directed all your journeying in the wilderness, so as to test you by affliction, to know what was in your heart, to keep his commandments or not. He therefore let you be afflicted with hunger, and then fed you with manna, a food unknown to you and your ancestors, so that you might know that it is not by bread alone that people live, but by all that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. End quote. So Jesus is answering Satan by talking about the manna in the desert. Well, Jesus will talk about the manna in the desert again later in the Gospel of John, where he says, Very truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then he adds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. End quote. So Satan wanted him to turn stones into bread, and he did Satan one better by turning himself into bread, in the bread of life on Holy Thursday at the institution of the Eucharist. In the Gospel of Luke, the second temptation is the temptation to gain the kingdom Satan's way. Jesus answers this one on Good Friday from the cross. Luke reports... Then he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a single instant. The devil said to him, I shall give you all this power and glory for it has been handed over to me and I may give it to whomever I wish. All this will be yours if you worship me. This time Jesus quotes Moses' instructions on how the Jewish people are supposed to live in prosperity. You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone should you serve. So Jesus wouldn't take Satan's kingdoms from him on Satan's terms. But he did take Satan's kingdoms from him on Good Friday, not by bowing to Satan, but by bowing to the Father's will and mounting the cross. Remember, Pilate asks him if he is a king. He is, but he says his kingdom is not of this world. So when Satan offered to crown him with gold in the desert, Jesus refused. But on Calvary, he is finally crowned with thorns satan said he would robe him in majesty instead jesus chooses to be robed in mockery and now in every crucifix jesus towers over the world as the conquering king wearing his crown of thorns so the third temptation is for christ to be saved in a dramatic fall from the temple instead on holy saturday jesus comes from below to save us let me explain last in luke satan takes jesus somehow to the top of the temple in jerusalem and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Satan even quotes Psalm 91 to try to make his case. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. It sounds so nice and religious, and that the angels are going to save Jesus. But of course, Jesus is God himself, and he doesn't need angels to save him. So the very next line of Psalm 91 is, You shall tread upon the asp and the viper. You shall trample down the lion and the dragon. So on Holy Saturday, Jesus descends into hell, plundering the viper's stronghold of souls and rising from the dead to cripple the prowling lion and snuff out the flames of the dragon. And notice how each of these reveals our role in this story. So Jesus gives us the Eucharist so that we can fast from what our appetites want from the world. Christians have always fasted. In our time, it's a precept of the church that we should fast on Good Friday and Ash Wednesday and abstain from meat on every Friday year-round. In America, you can do a substitute if you can find one as significant. We fast because we are all too easily made into slaves to our appetites. We're putty in the devil's hands if we can't control ourselves. Second, we fast to remind ourselves who our real master is and where our real happiness lies. One does not live on bread alone, as Jesus says. The happiness God offers is not the temporary partial happiness of a full stomach. That's the kind of happiness a skunk gets when it finds a half tub full of sour cream in the garbage. Our happiness is the forever deep happiness of uniting ourselves with God. The happiness a monk gets at morning prayer. Second, Jesus gives us the crucifix so we can remember to pray. The lesson of the crucifix is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? The Lord's Prayer. That's what's happening in the crucifixion. The devil shows Christ all the kingdoms in the world to try to distract him from worshiping God. Christ refuses. For us, it doesn't take him going to those great lengths. All he has to do is show us our smartphone or a work project that needs to get done at mass time or a new video rabbit hole on YouTube to crawl down as we're planning to say the rosary. In those moments, we can tell them, it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and him alone shall you serve. Not your curiosity, not your busyness, not your desire for a dopamine hit off of social media, but him. Third, Jesus saves souls eternally rather than tempting God to save him on earth. Okay, so we know God wants to save us. Do we spend our life in a kind of a comfortable free fall, expecting him to come to our rescue and save us that way? Or do we do the one thing he said would save us, which is serving him in others in need? Only the tough slog of loving God in real service to others, feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, comforting the afflicted, will win out in the end. We can't presume God's going to save us from our own lack of effort. In defeating Satan in the desert, Jesus redefines greatness and incentivizes a whole new set of quiet, steady virtues. In the story we read, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Isaiah told us even more about what God was getting at. In Isaiah, God says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I am pleased, upon whom I have put my spirit. I have grasped you by the hand. I formed you and set you as a covenant of the people, a light for the nations. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah shall bring forth justice to the nations, not crying out, not shouting, not making his voice heard in the street. The greatest powers are quiet and unnoticed, but fundamental. The movement of the earth, the growth of seeds, the oxygen in the atmosphere that keeps us all alive. This is the kind of power Jesus Christ is in the spiritual life. He may be unseen, but he changes everything. It takes faith to tap into his power, and it also takes a community. That's what we're going to look at next week, as God starts gathering a band of brothers together to bring the world his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by X at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at xcorde.org.